The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. Uh, And you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to miningstocks.com. Also, uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes a newsletter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, And uh, you also need to go to miningstocks.com to sign up for that newsletter. You do need to put your name on a waiting list. And at the beginning of the next calendar quarter, the first uh, 15 days or so of the new year, Chen will be accepting new subscribers. You can subscribe to my newsletter at any time. Again, that's miningstocks.com, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. I do want to thank each of you for listening to the show, and I uh, want to encourage you to send along your questions and comments, criticisms and praises to questions for Taylor at gmail.com, questions at number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Also follow me on Twitter at Jay Taylor Media. I do want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. For this week's show, they are RN Resources, Dynacore Gold Mines, and Kalanex Resources. Well, a headline in the Monday New York Times read, Strong growth in jobs may encourage the Fed to raise rates. Uh, it was written by uh, Nelson Schwartz. Uh, I had a little problem with that right off the bat because I do not believe, in fact, that we have really strong jobs growth in America. And I think uh, when we talk to John Williams later today, he is likely to agree with that. We'll hear what his latest views are on that issue. But I say that I don't see it's a strong labor market, uh, job market, for a couple of many different reasons. But first and foremost, most glaringly, we have a 38-year low in terms of the number of people employed. Um, only 62.4% of the civilian non-institutional population were holding jobs or seeking to hold jobs. So people just aren't looking for jobs. Now, a lot of people, uh, a lot of the uh, people that, uh, that want to hold on to the view that the market is, is strong will suggest that that's just because of the aging population or because of technology uh, is making jobs redundant and therefore 
people need to get better educated so they can fit into the workforce. That's the that's the mainstream mantra on that issue. But uh, you know, the the labor market, uh, people are not able to get jobs for whatever the reasons, uh, or they're not seeking jobs for whatever the reasons, and that means obviously. Uh, there's something going on beneath the surface that needs to be explained. I would suggest that actually the real reason that job markets are not what they're cracked up to be and the real reason that job markets are weak is because the economy is weak. Uh, We've had, uh, first of all, I look at the underlying economy, the commodity markets, which if we had a strong global economy would show some strength. Clearly we are seeing I would term it a depression in the metals markets and certainly in the energy markets. Uh, I look at, in my inflation deflation watch, I uh, look at several indices uh, that measure the real economy. The Rogers Raw Materials Index, for example, since 2011, when me- when uh, commodities peaked, is down 48%. Copper is down 48%. Crude oil is down 60%. And silver is down almost 70%. That was as of the last... Uh, last week. So we're, we're looking at this huge amount of quantitative easing that's gone, slo- money being created out of nothing, sloshing around the global economy, uh, and yet we're seeing all of this weakness in the real economy and all of this weakness, really truly weakness in the labor market. Uh, so I, I think that uh, the economy is not what it's cracked up to be. Uh, clearly, the people that uh, are engaging in policies want us to believe that things are good so that we will uh, continue to hang on to dollars and continue doing what uh, what they want us to do. Uh, I think Wall Street is definitely very pleased with the way things have been going for the last number of years, uh, and certainly Washington, for the most part, uh, the uh, the global, or let's say the uh, if you've been to Washington, D.C. any time in recent years, you'll realize how massive that uh, complex is down there, how massive the, uh, the government is becoming, um, never, never stops growing, just keeps getting bigger and bigger while the rest of the, uh, let's say, the productive part of society that creates wealth is stagnating or worse. I was just casting my eyes over a number of headlines from both Zero Hedge and David Stockman last week that I think uh, point to a, a major picture of stagnation or worse in the global economy. Uh, some of the headlines, Miss Shedlack, who's been on this show, uh, he, he wrote, we are heading towards into a global recession, and he, uh, an article that was titled Global Recession Alert, Container Ships Plunging into Worst Crisis Since 2009. Well, if there's any evidence or, uh, let's say, a protruding Pinocchio's nose that would evidence or suggest that the numbers that are being given to us by governments are are, are not quite what they're what they appear to be. It would be the fact that things aren't being shipped any longer, and uh, shipping rates are coming way down. Uh, and so, uh, as a result of that, some of the other zero hedge or uh, David Stockman corner articles. Uh, here's another one: global cooling alert. Korean exports down 16 percent, sharpest decline since 2009, tenth straight monthly drop. Another one was, ignore the dead cat bounce. The next financial crash has already begun. Another one, U.S. services economy tumbles to weakest since weather crush January. Now, of course, you know, we're supposed to say, well, we're no longer a manufacturing company, country, so we're a service country, service-orientated economy, uh, but even there, U.S. service economies tumble to the weakest since 
the weather crushed January. Consumer confidence slides as low gas prices no longer lift sentiment. Well, I wonder why. Uh, lower gas prices and maybe consumers are, don't have the money in their pockets. They don't, they're not getting paid as they once did. The real, or maybe the cost of living is higher than what we're told it is. That's certainly a topic we're going to talk to John Williams about a little later in today's show. Another topic, uh, another headline, durable goods orders tumble for six consecutive months as core CapEx plunges most since 2009. Seeing a lot of uh, reference to 2009 lows here on these headlines. Another one, global commodity deflation strikes due north. Canadian slump triggers huge capital flight. Wow, so the money is coming out of Canada, the capital is coming out of Canada because of continuously lower prices in uh, the metals and energy markets uh, that really suggest whether or not the global economy is growing. Clearly, it's not. It's We're seeing stagnation at best, and I would suggest possibly even global contraction. But I think perhaps the most ominous headline that I came across last week uh, was one uh, that came out of Zero Hedge. Futures markets halted after violent treasury reaction to jobs beat. Uh, that that was really amazing how the futures market, they had to shut it down briefly because of the massive uh, plunge uh, in, in the market as a result of the good news. It's supposed to be good news, but good news is bad news and bad news is good news in this perverted upside down economy that our policymakers are, are sending our way. But another one that I think is even more important is what do they know? Primary dealers are liquidating corporate bonds at an unprecedented pace. I think that is the most important headline I read last week. What do they know? Primary dealers. Primary dealers are the primary treasury dealers. These are guys that are really on the inside of the economy. They know if anybody knows what's going on, and they're liquidating corporate bonds at an unprecedented rate. And another one is uh, former Federal Reserve official Gunlich is saying that the S&P can't handle a December rate increase. Well, that really is my view. I've, I've said it all along. I don't think that the Fed can raise interest rates. They may be forced to at some point in time, but I don't believe they can because I think the underlying economy is, is so weak. Uh, and the equity markets, more importantly, the financial markets, uh, the highly leveraged financial markets are so vulnerable uh, that when you start to see rates rise, uh, carry trades and the like can be knocked off their pedestals, and then all of a sudden you can have a sort of a domino effect, I'm afraid. And I think um, certainly the Fed is watching it, and, uh, and, and they're afraid. So we'll see. December comes. Will they raise rates? Um, yeah, send along your ideas on this to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com if you'd like. I'd like to hear what some of you are thinking. I'm betting they can't. Well, we'll see if I'm right or not. Um, now, just a couple of other little headlines before we, uh, a couple of other little notes before we go to our first break. Dr. Robert McHugh put out uh, his missive this morning, as he usually does in the wee hours of the morning. And interestingly enough, the purchasing power indicator flashed a sell signal. And this is what Dr. McHugh has been saying we need to watch for and suggested that we should, uh, uh, that that will likely uh, mark the top of this uh, resurgent. Uh, equity market that we've seen of late. And of course, he remains extremely bearish. However, however, he says, uh, you know, he wouldn't bet the ranch uh, on anything these days because who knows, the Fed may go in and buy up the entire stock market. 
given their track record. And I, uh, I, I have to say, I think he could be right uh, about that. Who, who's to say what the Fed will do in order to try to save, uh, to save the, uh, the, the save the shareholders of the Federal Reserve Bank? Now, um, McHugh is also turning bearish short term on gold, uh, and. Um, so he is looking at, uh, but still remains very, very bullish long term, and is looking at a possibility of, of moving towards a $1,000 gold price in the short run. And for that, as one who's been on the long side of the gold market, all I can say is, ouch, that would hurt uh, to an extent. Though I have been doing some short-term shorts uh, on the gold market, uh, in the gold share markets, uh, just to try to offset some of the losses on my long position. Uh, one of the ideas that I passed along to my subscribers this past weekend, uh, how you can make money in the gold markets while we wait for a turnaround, and one is uh, a Gabelli fund, GAMCO, GAMCO Global Gold Natural Resource and Income Trust Fund. It's an ETF. You buy like an ETF. It's GGN is a symbol. And they're uh, providing something along the lines of a 14% yield right now. Basically what they do is they own uh, the best largest most uh, you know household name gold mining companies and they're in, then write covered calls on those uh, companies now of course uh, when the gold market finally turns back into a bull market uh, you will not receive all of the upside on Gampo, Gamco that you might with a gold corp or a new monitor company like that. Uh, but in the meantime, while you're waiting, you can get some pretty pretty good returns and your underlying asset are the strongest companies in the gold mining space. Well, we do have to go to a commercial break now, but when we come back, uh, Michael Oliver is going to be with us and uh, really anxious to hear what Michael has to say about some of these markets, which uh, are really causing a lot of consternation, both uh, for bulls and bears, no matter what you're looking at. Uh, it, it seems to be perhaps an inflection point that we are uh, sitting at right now. So uh, in any event, uh, don't go away. We'll be right back after the commercial break with Michael Oliver. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project, located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource, outlined by drilling thus far, stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over two. $200 million. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866 472 5790. That's 866 472 5790. Voice America Business Network.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again that most frequent guest on this show, Michael Oliver. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Always good to be back. Always good to have you, and let me tell, uh, remind our listeners again, it's OliverMSA, OliverMSA.com, to follow what Michael's doing to learn more about his excellent service. Uh, Michael, you know, in your weekend report, you stated that uh, trading on Friday was informative from the standpoint of view of a, a short-term momentum. Uh, but if I understand what you meant in an email you sent to me earlier today, you were suggesting that the markets are in the midst of a huge battle to determine future direction. There is a seemingly an ambivalence that is leading to a lot of investor anxiety. Certainly, I'm feeling it in many ways in the equity markets and the precious metals markets. And you said that uh, when these kinds of battles are resolved, though, they usually see uh, a more, let's say, a longer-term direction, and it's usually different from where they've come from. Is that right? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, congestions can be argued uh, in price when the market's moving in one direction and goes into a congestion phase. It could be a rest stop prior to higher prices or in a downtrend toward lower prices. Uh, but uh, after uh, protracted bull trends or bear trends, multiple years, mm-hmm. and then you get that, that behavior, just on the surface of price, uh, without even looking at momentum, you should be a little more cautious about that congestion being potential for a transition the other way, not, not a congestion for further gains. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I add mix into that, my, uh, the MSA's metrics on, on momentum, and we measure everything from daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual, and so forth, for measuring all kinds of timescales. Uh, everything flashing to me says, no, this is topping action in stocks. We're in a bottoming process in gold. Uh, we're, we're likely in a topping process in T-bond prices uh, over the next six months or so. Uh, and in the case of the dollar, we're likely in a topping process. Now, this does not preclude these constant give-and-take, uh, confusing uh, and mm-hmm. frustrating actions by all those markets. Where you know, Two weeks, you look at gold, it's up nicely, and it's back where it was uh, two and a half years ago, namely 1178. Or two weeks later, all of a sudden, you're down you know, under 1100 again. Uh, mm-hmm. We're in the stocks right now, for example, today's, it, it, today in the trading, we traded a price of 1071 at one point during the day. You can go back a year ago. We were exactly at that same price a, week, a year ago the same week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're yeah. getting the kind of action that is, should drive people nuts on uh, both sides. Both the longs get frustrated and the, and the potential shorts get constantly whipped out of their positions. And I think it's time to sit back and realize that that's the nature of what these major markets are involved in right now, are huge uh, transitional congestion zones mm-hmm. that I argue are going to resolve in opposite directions to the prior trends. Mm-hmm. That's uh, what you'd expect from history, I guess. But you know, it's hard to you know when you when you've when you've been experiencing a bull market for so long in stocks or a bear market so long in gold, you you get the feeling eventually that uh, you know throwing in the towel, capitulation, I guess mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, what sort of signs? I know your momentum stuff really tells you, gives you a heads up a lot sooner than the price does in many instances. 
Uh, is your momentum index uh, indicators giving you any sense of anything, or is just basically well, saying? Well, I've reverted recently to short-term momentum, and because a lot of clients were uh, wanting to see uh, what about the next three days, you know, instead uh-huh. of the next yeah. three months, and yeah. uh, but that's the nature of this market. So I did it just to more or less solve that, scratch that itch for them. And mm-hmm. the S&P closed yesterday a little bit too low. It looks like it's, it's under, you know, its near-term pressure could continue a bit. And again, we're talking very near-term, so it's really meaningless information, I, and I, I'm arguing. Uh, gold, I had a number for today at 1095. They were at 1094.80, and I want to close up there, and they're not going to, obviously, so uh, to turn it up for a trade. Uh, but frankly, that's not really the issue. The issue is, I think, getting into next year, because a lot of the numbers will change then quarterly and annual momentum numbers will change because the averages change. And at that point, I'm, I'm basically, I'm, I've come to the conclusion myself that don't be frustrated over the next, uh, well, it's 35 trading days left in the year. Uh-huh. Uh, don't be frustrated about the ups and downs over the next 35 days. I think most of these markets, the big markets, the ones that perhaps have not yet really moved in price in an obvious way, uh, are positioning so that in 2016 you'll get a move that will be clear on price. Now, we have to put a caveat on that. And the caveat is a lot of these markets on momentum have already indicated that intended direction, especially on mm-hmm. the S&P, and that's down. Mm-hmm. Um, Gold has a momentum situation, a structure on its momentum charts, that if you saw the momentum charts that I issue on gold and compared it to what you, th- you see on a price chart, you'll be stunned by the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, the momentum has clearly got a massive basing pattern, mm-hmm. uh, despite the uh, gradual erosion in price over the last two years. Mm-hmm. And it is gradual if you'll be objective about it. Mm-hmm. Um, whether we're going to go like uh, some people think to a thousand or eight hundred or whatever, I, I tend to think not. I, you know, I think it's still an erosional situation where, you know, the right juxtaposition of a few days' action can suddenly all of a sudden you have a fifty dollar rally, mm-hmm. and then all that that thought of the next decline goes away. Uh, mm-hmm. We've seen this over the last year or two, repeatedly, yeah. where every time you make a new low, oh, we're going to a thousand, and we don't. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, maybe we finally will, but you know, it's, so far it's been a teaser, and I think all that process is merely building up the pressure cooker in all these markets for that new rever- that reversal and, and, and movement in the new direction. Right. So we're looking for a reversal to the downside in the equity markets and the bond markets too, I guess, probably, right? Well, the, the, see, we're talking government debt here as opposed to like yes. high yield. So the Federal yes. Reserve and the central banks, the developed market central banks, uh, deliberately wanted to price equities higher and also wanted to push investors into out-of-safe debt and out-of-savings into high-yield debt. They did that. Mm-hmm. But the high yield market is starting to implode, and it's been mm-hmm. uh, coming down steadily in price, rising in yield over the last six months or so, uh, to the point where now it's pretty obvious. There's no issue about it. So of yeah. the two markets that the central banks basically put their bets upon, they won in both, but one of them is now turned on them. It's high yield market. All right. Now then the issue becomes, well, what about the safe debt, the government debt, the 30-year T-bond, the 10-year, the, the Bund in Germany? Those markets still look safe for a while to me because I think that primarily the reason they're staying afloat, aside from the fact that central banks have more influence over them, uh, but that is that the rattling effect in the stock market, for instance, last August sell-off, or the Bund, uh, the 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 excuse me, the uh, German stock market took a big hit recently as well. So money flew into the Bunds, 
money flew into the T-bonds for safety. And I think that that same movement will continue to occur because I think between now and sometime next quarter, we're going to have another big drop in the stock market, in which case the the, the T-bonds will get another boost. But after that next boost, uh, I see vulnerability in 2016 in the uh, government debt market. Wow. The high yield. High yield's already broken. Yeah, Um, indeed. And and the charts that you showed in your weekly weekend missive are just really – uh, you know, re- really make that point very, very clearly. And and uh, do you think it's early yet in the high yield markets? There's some money to be made on the short side. HYG. I, I'm, short I'm somewhat a believer in chaos theory, and I, I think the clock on that could get very fast, very quickly. In other words, whatever low you're going to make there might occur extremely deep, but extremely soon, like you know, in the next six months, not the next two uh-huh. years. Uh-huh. If you get my uh-huh. point. Yeah. Uh, in other words, how some things move along incrementally in a given trend, and then suddenly there's this whoosh factor. Yeah. And so a lot of business gets done very quickly. And uh, those people who like to think that markets move in, in judicious, uh, thoughtful <laughs> manner, uh, invariably they get proved wrong at some point in the trend. Yeah. You know, where suddenly it's, it's 10 steps forward, not two, two, out of, two out of one, you know, so forth. Yeah, indeed. Well, uh, HYG is, is a chart that you show here, and of course that's an ETF uh, on the short side. That's, is that a leveraged or is that a, is that no, a leveraged? That's a, that's a long uh, ETF for the U.S. government, uh, not, excuse me, U.S. corporate debt. Uh-huh. Uh, then there's uh, uh, TLT, which is a long only unleveraged of U.S. government debt, which is strong. Right. So you have one ETF, TLT, which is basically steady to firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, reflective of 20-year and maturity on out of U.S. Treasury. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going opposite. Its yield is, is, is declining. Its price is remaining firm while the HYG is declining in price. I mm-hmm. think that, that, the, that spread between those two will snap at some point, in which case mm-hmm. HYG will have run its course and then the U.S. government debt will join it. Now, mm-hmm. that's the real issue for the fundamental world. Mm-hmm. And I know most people don't want to think about this, but uh, how mm-hmm. can you possibly add a couple percentage points to long your 30-year debt? And what will be the implications of that to the government's ability to service its debt? Yeah. Without, oh, indeed. Uh, I, it's yeah. not well, not yeah. to mention what it might do to all of the uh, the levered trades and the uh, absolutely uh, you know the things that are going on. So yeah, it, it seems to me, Michael, that this uh, canary in the coal mine, so to speak, maybe with this high yield stuff. Could be indicating, you know, some some let's say tremors in the tectonic shifts mm-hmm. that are well, going it's on. It's out of control. There's no question. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. is it is not doing what they wanted it to do. Uh, it did yeah. early, uh, but from 2011 through 13 or 14, uh, high yield market performed very well. Uh, and so, people who followed the Fed's lead and encouragement and effectively only route they carved for you, if you wanted to invest and in, in, in earn interest, uh, you were rewarded. But now suddenly you're being destroyed. So it show, it goes to show that uh, markets that are controlled by central banks or heavily influenced don't always remain under that control. People in the stock market need to realize that. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that you know, you're know you a technical analyst. I know, though, also that you, you're certainly knowledgeable about fundamentals, though you're, uh, I, I think you're right in suggesting that technicals tell the picture before you can understand what's going on with the fundamentals, but it seems to me that if we're starting to see some weakness in the high-yield markets, it's probably suggesting, as I did earlier in the introduction of this show, that things are not all that well in the global economy, and uh, you would start to see it in, in the weaker debt markets first, uh, where debts can't be paid. We certainly have seen it. Uh, maybe I just ask you, before, in the last minute we have or so here, uh, one of the areas of weakness in the high-yield market, of course, has been in the energy space. 
Mm-hmm. What are what are you seeing now in uh, oil? I mean, do we have any upside potential soon in the energy markets, Mike? I don't think so. I don't think in oil you have upside potential soon. I think the upside potential in oil is likely to show itself in Q1 of next year. Uh, I don't think oil is one of the worst places to be in commodities, mm-hmm. even if the commodities quote is a basket bottom. And I think they are bottoming. I think some commodities have already bottomed. Uh, some of them haven't because they were latecomers to the downside, to the contractionary situation. Uh, like cattle was a, a latecomer on the downside, and it's making new lows today. Uh, and oil was a latecomer. Most of them mm-hmm. popped in 2011. Oil didn't really fall apart until 2014. So it's a latecomer, and it's going to take a while to bottom it. So uh, if you want to buy commodities, that's probably one of, one of should be at the end of the list. It's going to mm-hmm. need more work. And work by work with quotes around that, it, for a technician, what it means is time and, and distance spent building a bottom. Mm-hmm. It may involve a new low. Uh, yeah. I can't rule that out. Our recent low was just below 38 a month or two ago. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we tickle that out before it's over with. I'm not okay. looking for a collapse to $20 oil or anything of that sort. But, you know, another marginal new low, below that low uh, in this process would not surprise me. Okay. But the upside looks like my bet would be next year at the best absolute best okay uh, you get in the upper 60s all right michael we have to leave it at that because we're out of time as always it goes so fast for you just to remind my listeners it's olivermsa.com olivermsa.com thank you so much uh, for being with me again michael and look to do it again hopefully next week good thank you jay all right folks well we do have to go to break now but don't go away because coming up next is economist john williams uh, he's uh, sticking to his hyperinflation forecast we're going to ask him about that and, and what he sees uh, to convince him that that's uh, the direction we'll be heading sooner or later. So don't go away. We'll be right back with economist John Williams. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Kalinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Kalinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalinex by visiting kalinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Kalinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Walter John Williams. John Williams, he goes by. He's uh, an economist that I have known for quite a few years now, and John has been on this show a number of times in the past. Uh, he has uh, an MBA from Dartmouth, uh, Amos Tuck School of Business Administration. He uh, really, though, uh, has gone in a different direction than most Ivy Leaguers, I would say, and that he's remained very independent. He uh, writes the uh, Shadow Shadow Government Statistics newsletter, which I think is a must-read for anybody who really cares to know what the truth is about our economy, or at least to get a different opinion than what is given to you by the mainstream propagandist. Uh, And you can go to, I believe it's shadowstats.com. Uh, to learn more about John's excellent service. Very modestly priced letter, very affordable letter. Uh, So I really would suggest to our listeners that you check John's work out at shadowstats.com. Thanks for joining me again, John. Uh, Thanks for having me, Jay. Always good to talk to you about your latest views on on the economy, what's really going on as opposed to uh, the happy talk we get every day. Uh, from the mainstream media, you know your your views of uh, at Shadowstats newsletter is very much, I would say, at odds. So the you, the mainstream has paid some attention to you, but for the most part, your views are pretty much at odds with mainstream propaganda, especially when it comes to some very important statistics like uh, inflation and unemployment, that sort of thing. Uh, for the benefit of people that may not be that familiar with your work, can you tell our listeners? How you came about to take such a contrarian view to the sort of mainstream happy talk we're given every day uh, on CNBC? Well, I've been a a private consulting economist for more than 30 years now, and um, early on I was uh, trying to forecast the economy for my my clients and had some pretty good models on it, but I found that the underlying fundamentals kept shifting, that the relationships kept shifting, and... uh, what was happening, very simply, is that the government changed its reporting uh, methodologies of various series, a series ranging from the, uh, in the inflation measures to the employment measures to the uh, uh, GDP measures. Mm-hmm. And uh, they generally, uh, over time, built an upside biases to the economic statistics, uh, strengthening biases and, and uh, downside biases into the inflation numbers, uh, enough so that... Uh, Common experience just varied with what the government was reporting. I found people increasingly were uh, were not believing the numbers. Uh, so I uh, ended up uh, specializing in the quality of the government statistics and trying to estimate where the numbers uh, would be if the government hadn't uh, monkeyed around with its reporting approaches. Mm-hmm. So what you've done essentially is gone back and, and looked at things as they were in the past so that you would have the... Uh, a series of data that would be constructed on the same basis, I guess, both both on in inflation and unemployment, right? That's correct. Yeah. So, all right. So, if inflation uh, is underreported, that is, if there's if if the cost of living, I guess, is let's first of all de- define inflation. I mean, what you're talking about is the cost of living. I mean, I as a as a kid, I remember them talking about what it costs to feed a family of four. I never hear that anymore. 
what it costs to, you know, what does it cost to stay alive? What is the cost of, you know, the basic needs in life, food, shelter, clothing, that sort of thing, right? But what, now, what, what do your numbers suggest uh, the basic cost of staying alive would be compared to what the government's CPI numbers are? Well, you have to keep in mind here that the differences are largely uh, definitional. Uh-huh. Um, up until the 1980s, the way consumer price indexes had been uh, constructed, basically they measured uh, the cost of living in terms of what was considered uh, what's necessary to maintain a constant standard of living. Okay. Real simplistically, let's say they'd measure the cost of a pound of steak, a gallon of gas, a loaf of bread. They take that same basket of goods and price it out the next year, and however much the basket of goods had changed, that's how much your consistent cost of living um, increased. Uh, and that was pretty much the way it was up until the uh, 80s. They started to make some changes in the way they defined uh, quality, and uh, they came up with uh, computerized models of quality adjustments that... Uh, couldn't be measured uh, in, in terms of dollars. Nonetheless, they would use that to, um, as a quality went up to reduce inflation. For example, uh, where you had a, uh, uh, a government-mandated uh, reformulation of gasoline to help with, uh, with emissions, mm-hmm. that added $0.10 cents, uh, per gallon to the cost of gasoline at the time, a big increase. But uh-huh. it didn't get into the CPI because the government deemed that to be a quality improvement. Yes. But from the standpoint of the average person, Pumping the guy pumping a gas before he went to work was moaning and groaning about how much more it's going to cost him to drive to work. Not that rejoicing that he was going to have clean air. Mm-hmm. Um, what the government did with the numbers is move it away from what people would look at in terms of maintaining a constant standard of living and out-of-pocket expenses. It no longer does that. Mm-hmm. They, they, they increased. They put. They put in substitution effects because that's that's where uh, Alan Greenspan took the system to task. He said, "Oh." CPI's uh, <clears throat> overstates inflation. If only we had a more realistic inflation measure, the government's uh, uh, spending would be less. It would help us, help us keep the deficit under control. Why? Because if, if they had a lower inflation rate, they could uh, cut back on the uh, uh, annual cost of living adjustments for Social Security, for example. Sure, right. And uh, you'd ask them, well, what do you mean it overstates inflation? And his response was simply, well, the price of steak goes uh, way up. It gets too expensive. People buy more hamburger, and if they if they buy more hamburger, then their cost of living isn't, isn't as high, and they're not they're not um, spending as much. So that's uh, that. By his definition, was uh, perhaps accurate, but it was not the inflation from the standpoint of maintaining a, a constant standard of living. Right. Right. So that uh, as the numbers changed. Um, people today generally don't know that the government has changed the way it's, it, it calculates inflation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, if if you look at, at, at the government's inflation measure, why do people look at inflation measures? Well, they look at, well, how much might, should my income be increasing uh, right. so that I can stay ahead of inflation? Uh, mm-hmm. What should I target at least as a minimum uh, rate of return so I stay ahead of inflation? If you're using the government's inflation numbers, you're not staying ahead on either uh, on, on either account, the uh, right now, um, I don't go. I do not go in and recalculate the CPI. What I do is I've taken the government's estimates mm-hmm. of how much their changes to the series have cost in terms of annual inflation, and I add that back in. Mm-hmm. And depending upon the time frame, time frame that you look at, 
where the government is showing zero uh, inflation right now, um, it's uh, the reality, um, the way it would have been, let's say, back in uh, um, 1990, would have been, uh, we'd be up at 3.5%. We're somewhere, some reality would be somewhere in 35 to 7%. Yeah. Okay. So then that makes a big difference then in the GDP numbers, doesn't it? The GDP numbers that are reported uh, then are, if they use your definition or your way of calculating it, uh, if it's three and a half percent instead of zero or whatever they're saying it is. Well, now. it's the GDP. Um, um, Any time you deflate a number for inflation, as they do with the GDP, and it makes sense right. that you look at it not of inflation, right? Because uh, otherwise, uh, you know, if inflation is. Uh, rising and you're not taking the inflation out, then you're seeing growth there that really isn't fundamental economic growth, it's just inflation. Um, right. But they use a different measure for the, for the GDP, and, and there, um, I, I think you'll find a, a 2% is uh, um, re- reflective of the GDP measure. You have all sorts of funny things that happen where they uh, back out the trade deficit and such. Um, so that oil that's imported actually is a um, the, the, when the inflation rate goes up there, it's actually going down in the GDP. It, it, mm-hmm. It's just the way the numbers are, are, are calculated. Yeah. Right, so, so how, do you, how do your... That, uh, I'm sorry. How, how do your numbers then, John, compare with the government's numbers now year over year, let's say, on GDP? Well, in terms of year-to-year change... Um, Approximately. It, uh, let me put it this way. We're, we're, in terms of annual growth, we're looking at something that's close to 2% less than the official number. Uh-huh. But if you look at the economic collapse that we had um, going into 2009, the economy started collapsing in 2005 and six. You mm-hmm. can see that in the housing area. Officially, the recession didn't start till December of 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, then the economy collapses into mid-2009. The official version then is the economy uh, recovers, rebounds, we're now 10% above where we were before the recession. If you look at it with uh, an, a corrected uh, GDP growth, what happens is you plunge into 2009 and then you uh, bottom bounce uh, at a low level of stagnation. And what I'm seeing now is that we're actually turning down again. Mm. I contend that the common experience is a lot closer to what I'm looking at. And uh, if, uh, if, you, if you don't think I'm right on that, uh, consider... Uh, the Fed keeps squawking about whether or not the economy is improving. Well, if, we, if the GDP is 10% above where it was before it went into this last uh, recession, um, what's, what's the problem? It's not. Yeah, why, why haven't they raised interest rates? It. Yeah, why haven't, they raised, why haven't they not been able to raise interest rates if the economy is so strong, John? Uh, right? there's, uh, there are big problems in the system. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> the, uh, what you have to keep in mind is that we're still living out a, uh, a near uh, collapse to the financial system that took place in 2008. The, 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 these guys weren't kidding when they said, well, you know, the system's on the brink of collapse. The banking system was. Uh, you had banks in the, that uh, were insolvent. Um, AIG had to be taken over by the, uh, the Fed. General mm-hmm. Motors went bankrupt. The system was on the brink of financial collapse. And uh, where you have the Federal Reserve... Um, and they say, oh, yes, we, we have mandates from Congress, so we have to you know, keep uh, unemployment down and, and, uh, uh, and, and maintain a low level of uh, uh, good inflation. Um, that's fine, but the, the Fed's primary function is to keep the banking system afloat. 
and right. the banking system was on the brink of collapse. So what did they do? The Fed, the central government, the Treasury did everything they had to do. They uh, anything they could do. They created money. They they lent money. They they guaranteed uh, all, all uh, deposits. They bailed out whoever had to be bailed out. They did everything they had to do to keep the system from collapsing. The only problem was they never addressed the fundamentals that got us into the uh, uh, panic and collapse in the first place. Right. The economy still is in trouble. The banking system is far from uh, uh, robust, and uh, the, the federal deficit is still way out of control on a, on a, on a gap basis using generally account, accepted accounting principles. That's still widening at about uh, $5 trillion a year, up around $100 trillion. That's why the dollar was uh, um, being sold off. That's why... The, the, everyone was moving out of out of the uh, the dollar that helped to create the panic in in, in two thousand eight. The Fed came in, and uh, one thing they used was they uh, there was this quantitative easing. Now they used this political cover here. Well, if we use quantitative easing, we're, we're going to um, um, <clears throat> we're going to help the economy. Economy needs yeah. to be helped. There's yeah. nothing they could do to help the economy. They they knew yeah. that. Bernanke indicated that. Um, the the uh, what the quantitative easing did was they bought a tremendous amount, a couple of trillion dollars worth of treasuries out of the system, um, and then had the banks deposit their cash back with the Fed as excess reserves. The banks didn't lend that money into yeah. the normal flow of commerce. Had they done that, that would have helped the economy. You would have seen, seen increased lending. You would have seen yeah. the money supply pick up. You'd also have seen inflation pick up. But this this was designed as a covert way of trying to bail out the the banks. That oh, was, and of course, uh, of course, we're, also we're John, it, it had a, yeah. a panic that took place in two thousand eight, and the stopgap measures that they put into place are still in place, and they're afraid to remove them because they they don't know what's going to happen. I think they're seeing new problems in the system. They never address the problems in the system. We're still on the brink of a collapse, as far as they're concerned, and they're they're just buying time. They don't know what to do. Okay, so let me ask you, John, do you think they'll raise in December? It seems to me that what they're really trying to do is trying to con people into believing and into having faith in the system. Because I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, and I don't understand how, you know, with the economy getting weaker, which I believe every bit of what you say is true in that regard, how much longer can the economy continue to get weak and financial system hold together. I mean, there has to be some connection between the two at some point. I would think there, there is, and I, I don't. It's, I mean, it's. I don't think it's going to be a real long period of time before you see an extraordinary break in another, and, and another panic. The Fed is uh, when they well, they want to raise interest rates. All they have to do is vote for it. Um, when they say they 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 say, well, we're not going to do it now and then. Give them, you give them two to three days, and oh yes, we're going to raise it uh, next time round. Yeah, and right. The reason they keep uh, putting that out there is they're, they're trying to hold the dollar up. And right. If, if, if it looks like interest rates are going to rise for the in, in uh, U.S. dollars, that tends to attract some money into the dollars. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think I don't think we're going to see uh, any increase by the Fed until after the election. If they don't do it in if they don't if they could have should have done it in December. If they're going, I mean, excuse me, in September. If they're going to do it, although yes, but we're going to do it in October. No, they didn't do it in October. No, now, they now don't. December's um, absolutely set uh, nonsense. You've got all sorts of numbers in between. Uh, the economy is not picking up, and as you see, weaker uh, economics. They'll have an excuse for not doing it in November, and and then you're into the uh, election season. 
they're they're not going to do anything till after the election. The way I see it, I may well, John, be wrong, a, but if yeah. they do it, um, it it's, it's not going to change things that much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe the system will collapse, but then they'll quickly go back and and go back to where they were. They they're not going to raise rates by much if they do. Well, John, it seems to me that people are really so easily conned. I mean, how long can the Fed continue this on? I mean, at some point in, in, in time, Pinocchio's nose gets so long that it can no longer be hidden, it seems to me. I mean, we were talking to Michael Oliver a little bit about the, uh, the high-yield debt market is starting to look, break down significantly, and I'm suggesting that that's the connection to the real economy. And if the high-yield debt market starts to break down, could that not possibly start triggering, uh, you know, like dominoes, some other markets? Yeah, it, it very easily could. I can't. I, I I can't see uh, that the Fed's got much credibility at this point. <clears throat> I mean, anybody who's, who who, who uh, seriously believes in uh, week to week here that uh, doesn't understand uh, uh, the, the systems. Well, the 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 Fed. I, I mean, to, to, I, I've never seen a Fed that was so apparently indecisive. That's nonsense. The Fed is a powerful the most powerful central bank in the world, and they can't figure out whether or not they want to raise interest rates. There's something terrible going on here, and the reason they're not raising rates isn't because of the economy. It's because they, they see a big problem there. They don't know how to handle it. They're just buying time. They're whistling in the dark. It would be nice if they had a solution. They're hoping something will come along, but they don't have it. It's very scary. Mm-hmm. You're, gonna, you're eventually going to see a massive decline in the dollar here, which creates all sorts of problems. So the Fed is pumping all this money into the economy or, or into the banking system, essentially. Into the banking system. Is that, they're, they're not yeah, pumping it into the economy. It's not, it's not getting in the economy, but what it's doing is it's helping to hide the problems that are still on the bank balance sheets, no doubt, or in the banking system. You got it. And it's providing liquidity to save the lives of these uh, illegitimate, essentially, if we had a free market, illegitimate institutions. Well, let me ask you, because your key uh, hypothesis about what will drive hyperinflation, and you have not backed away from that one bit, despite the fact that we've had extremely weak prices in, in commodities and so forth. You've stuck to it, and the basic driver there is a dollar uh, that you think will ultimately come under pressure and uh, people lose confidence in the dollar. Then I could see how you would get to the hyperinflation, but John, it seems very difficult. And I bring that up to people, they'll, the inevitable response always is, yeah, but where else are people going to put their money? There's no other currency that, can, uh, that has the liquidity. There's no other currency that's, uh, at, you know, the, maybe the dollar is bad, but it's not nearly as bad as most of the others. What's your well, response to that? And what will ultimately cause confidence to be shaken in the world's reserve currency? Well, the, the confidence has been shaken. The, I mean, we, we, we've been through an extraordinary crisis, and the rest of the world went along with the dollar. You go back to um, the time when uh, Standard & Poor's uh, downgraded the treasuries? Right. Um, that, was, that was because of the, uh, the deficit circumstance, which now the, uh, magically has been put off until after, um, uh, after the election. Yeah. Um, but at that point in time, you, you had a dollar panic. The rest of the world was pulling out. Nobody wants to hold the dollars. Everyone knows, and I, I'm talking the big guys, I'm talking the central banks, they know the dollar is a losing proposition. But they don't, they don't want to uh, see it happen because it's, it's going to be very bad for the, uh, uh, the global economy, the global financial system. 
Um, yet uh, you, you don't want to be the last guy out the door either. I mean, if you're holding all your assets in uh, dollars and the dollar collapses, um, you're going to lose a lot of money. The, what, yeah. what happened then was there, you had extraordinary, extraordinary interventions that were put in. This was Frank was tied to the euro. Uh, I mean, all sorts of uh, machinations went, in, went into play. The U.S. government just put into the background, put in, put on hold all the fundamentals that had to address. If, if the U.S. had actually gone ahead and, and put its long-term fiscal house in order, if it had resolved issues in terms of long-range uh, solvency risk for the U.S. government, um, we might have a different circumstance. Sense, but they've never done that. What they've done is they've just made things worse. When I was when I was looking at a uh, for, when I was first uh, when I first predicted a hyperinflation, that was back in uh, 2004, and that was based on where the government had uh, put in place uh, an updated uh, Medicare system. And what they did was they didn't fund it. If you look at the um, gap accounting measures, not just what you're spending now, but what you're committing to spend in the future, the the gap deficit that year jumped by eight trillion dollars. No. Now that was the size of gross federal debt at that time. Effectively, they doubled the liabilities of the federal government um, by not funding that, that 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 circumstance. I talked to people in the administration, say, "Hey, look, guys, um, you're setting up a hyperinflation here." I said, "Oh, that's too far into the future to worry about." Yeah. So I started writing about it. I thought we'd see it by the end of this decade. Um, yeah. Then this crisis came along, and it's all partially related. I advanced yeah. my forecast to 2014. I figured it would happen at that point in time. That was ba- that was back in uh, 2008, 2009. I've since pushed it into 2015 and 2016. Uh, I've been surprised they were able to uh, keep the dollar together as long as they have here, but the underlying fundamentals have not changed. The economy's not not come back. The oh, John, John, I, keeps getting worse. John, I have and, to interrupt uh, you because the rest we're, of the we're world backs away from the dollar. It's John, will happen. I mean, you China. John, I have to. I have be a big buyer of treasuries. Hey, John, I have to interrupt you. John, I have to interrupt you just for a second here because we're running out of time. We only have a couple of minutes here, and I want to address gold. But I I couldn't help but think when you talked about the S and P downgrading the dollar, that was in 2011. Up until that point in time, as quantitative easing one and two were going on, the stock market and gold rose together. It was very closely correlated. However. As soon as S&P, right shortly after S&P downgraded the dollar, gold disconnected from quantitative easing. And I think that there was some things going on there in terms of manipulation of the gold markets. Otherwise, people might have lost confidence in the dollar. But if you could say that gold is going down, it's getting trashed, nothing better than the dollar. Any theories on that? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Indeed, it was uh, manipulated. Um, central banks have been trying to drive uh, people away from gold for a long time. When I look at people, I look at gold, gold as your ultimate hedge here. And uh, I'm not looking at it to buy and sell. And uh, I mean, you, you're going to have your ups and downs, but when this crisis hits, you want to have your assets in gold. That will yeah. get you through the uh, uh, crisis. And, uh, All right, John. Uh, John, we got just you know less than two minutes. I have to ask okay. you about a comment that uh, was attributed to Warren Buffett on gold. Buffett is saying, oh, just stay away from the yellow metal. I mean, if you want to build wealth, the last place you want to do, the last place you want to be is gold. What are, what are your comments on that? He's a, he's a great investor. However, there are unusual times, and this is one of them. 
if you want to um, if you want to uh, lose your wealth, keep your keep your um, assets in cash denominated in dollars. If you want to preserve your wealth, put it in gold. If you want to build your wealth, you know you can play some games with what you have left over, but you need to preserve the basic assets and wealth that you have through what's going to be a debasement of the dollar that will take it effectively to zero and that will provide liquidity to get you through very uh, difficult times. So physical right, gold, John. hold it through oh. the uh, rough times ahead. Then, you, then you'll have uh, wonderful investment opportunities for building wealth more than uh, Mr. Buffett's ever seen. All right, very good. Thank you very much. We're out of time. I want to tell our listeners, though, it's shadowstats.com. Is that right, John, where they can pick that's, up on your work right, and yes. subscribe? Shadowstats.com. Folks, go there, do that, because, uh, you know, I've been a subscriber for a long time, and it's absolutely worth every penny, a very modest price to, uh, to get an annual subscription to shadowstats.com. Thank you very much, John, for being with us. That is all the time we have for this week, folks. Uh, next week, we're going to have with us William Angdahl historian and economist William Engdahl, who really will have some very interesting things to say. The Gods of Money, his book, I think, is a, is a real gem uh, and uh, it very much should be read by all of our listeners if you want to understand what's really going on um, in, in terms of the geopolitics of, of these markets. Uh, very worthwhile. do want to thank each of you for listening and also uh, want to thank our sponsors, uh, Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer. And until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor Gold. 